Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. With us today is Rob Hawker. He is joining us from England. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. First time I've ever been on a podcast, so it's great to get started with this. Now, awesome. We will have some fun today. Uh, so, Rob, one that you are in the long line of illustrious guests that we've had that did not start their careers thinking that they were going to be in the data world. What is your unique story there? Your unique journey on on how you and how you got started. Where did you start? So let's back up a little bit. Where did you start? Um, and then we can walk a little bit through how you get there, and then eventually get to what we really want to talk about a lot is the book that you've just so recently published that a lot of us are excited about. Teaser out there, why do we want to listen to Rob talk about as well? He wrote an awesome book on data quality, practical data quality. As you, as anybody that knows me, I love practical things. Um, so that's the teaser out there. So now, you know, Rob, what's the story for you? Cool. All right. So where to start? I'll start at the beginning. I started my career as a chartered accountant. So I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers out of university on their graduate scheme, which was a fantastic opportunity. I got to qualify as an accountant, taking some really tough exams and learn about lots of different businesses. So I went to many different companies for short periods of time auditing, basically. And it's a great way to learn. But I have to admit, it didn't really get me excited and get me out of bed in the morning. I didn't know what I wanted to do, kind of knew fairly quickly that it wasn't. That. I'm still battled through three years of exams. Then after that, I found my way into industry. So I left counting practice and went first of all to Vodafone and spent around 10 years in total in Vodafone. And the story of my trip to Vodafone and the way that it moved me into data was quite an interesting one. So I took an accounting based role at Vodafone, joining a team that was working on Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, and it was very much a finance based role. But what, by the time I got there and had my three months notice period, um, as we have over here in in the UK, um, <laughs> the, everything had got a bit confused and changed at Vodafone and the role that I'd originally applied for had essentially been given to somebody else. And I was asked to become the systems administrator for a tool. And it sounded really dull at first. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? Do I really want to be here? But actually a fantastic person from EY who'd been helping Vodafone with their compliance work convinced me that it could be interesting. And actually, it was really interesting. It was my first foray into data. I had to build reports in Cognos. I had to manage all the change to that system. And suddenly, I was in an IT job, basically, with the finance background to make it work. But it was really an IT job. And for the first time, I was really excited about work. So, Isn't it interesting the happy accidents yeah. that can take us in very different? Here at Vodafone, very large company, and happy ending with that first mistake because you stayed there for 10 years and grew a lot, but a happy mistake that led to its unintended and good outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been more than one of those in my career, but that's the biggest one <laughs> for sure. So yeah, after that, the next big thing at Vodafone was an, a massive transformation and move to a single ERP system. So the company had grown by acquisition. It had many different many different sub-companies all around the world, subsidiaries, Portugal, Germany, Spain, Italy, UK, etc. Um, and they're all basically telecoms providers, but they're all doing that they're all on different systems and doing things in different ways. So the idea was to put single shared services organization in place, single procurement organization, 
and move everything onto one instance of SAP. And I became the data guy for that, basically, initially doing finance data because of my background, but moving on to master data management, data quality, and eventually leading that team for the last four years that I was at Vodafone. feel like that needs to be a profile or like a title that many of us should be able to put onto our LinkedIn's. It's like the data guy, the data gal, the data person. But with that, the is in broad caps right there. Yeah. Because every, almost every one of us have had that role at some time to be the data and then whatever that follows that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my it's always been data since then, but it's it's evolved a little bit since then. It was... These days, it's the Power BI data nerd, which is something that I absolutely, and we'll come to that later, but something I love working with these days. Yeah, so having found my way into that and spent 10 years there, I mean, it was a massive thing to be involved in, an amazing program. 100,000 users went live on that system eventually in 23 different countries by the time I left, and I was there for most of that journey. So it was really great grounding, but it was very SAP focused. I was very cognizant that... Mm -hmm. I could tell you all about the SAP vendors, materials, customers. I knew that inside out. <laughs> and I think I then moved to Nationwide Building Society, which was running a huge analytics program and wanted a data governance person to support within that program. That's, that was only three years, but a good grounding for me because it was much broader than just SAP and it was another industry. So it was a good, good place for me to be. And... Following that, the, re the reason I really moved on is there was just a great opportunity to join a flu vaccine company called Securus. So it's a global flu vaccine manufacturer and distributor. And it had really only been formed through merger activity a couple of years before I joined. And it was starting from scratch. It was putting all new systems in place. And I was the first data person hired. And my job was to set up that data team from the beginning. So hiring data governance people, hiring analytics people, setting up our data warehouse and everything like that. And it was an SAP focused organization. So I was able to bring that SAP history, but then start everything from the beginning. And, and it was just fantastic. I was there for five years doing that. And we made a, a big transformation within that organization, definitely, and left it in a, I think, better position than when it started. And then after that, I went to Discovery TV and I worked as their director of data visualization. Um, and it, the reason I did that was because I just, I, my head was turned at Securus by working with Power BI for the first time. So we needed to bring a data viz tool in to Power to Securus and we chose Power BI. And because we were a small team just getting started, I, I was very hands-on to begin with. And I just was so thrilled working with Power BI. I learned how to use Power BI in Liverpool in a training session from someone who's become a friend, a guy called Alska Gunnarsson. And I spent the whole three and a half hour train journey just working with Power BI and taking some data that I've been struggling with and doing cool things with it. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got back to where I live, um, it was a fully formed usable product that actually then became used by Securus commercial team. And the fact I could do that in that short period of time turned my head to the point that I moved away from leadership roles back to the coalface and getting my hand on Power BI. So that's why I moved to Discovery because the role was dedicated to visualization and Power BI. And then after the merger with that they had with Warner Media, a lot of things moved over to the US and it didn't make sense for me anymore. And so I was there for quite a short time, although I did learn a lot. And then 
after that, I just saw the opportunity to go independent and do my own thing. And that is when the book came up, basically. Long answer yeah, to it. Yeah, and you, you've... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you have a short and compact history. You've done a great many things. So yeah, I'm you. old. It's, I'm old. Good I get it. Set... <laughs> <laughs> we both have gray hair. We're, I think, I don't know the exact age, but I'm guessing, given your work history, we are probably spot on around the same age. I can't throw too many stones because this house is totally made of glass. But the... Um, I do have one question I wrote down. I'm going to come. It was not a planned question, but it is a question I'll ask here in a little bit. As that kind of final transition on, hey, what are Robert's insights? What are Rob's insights? What are those things that about work history that's propelled to the book? You have gone in this major transition for many people, going from working for these big companies to doing independent. So just so now, Rob, you've given us this perspective on your long work history and at some point uh, after Vodafone, after Nationwide, after Securus, you went to independent. And in that going to independent consulting, you also have now written the book. You know, as we transition to now talking about the motivations to write the book, as far as the history of Rob and on that note on what are you doing today as an independent? And then we'll jump into talking about the book. Cool. Amazing. Thanks. Yeah. So I've I've already told you how thrilled I was to start getting into Power BI and my knowledge grew really quickly. I think when you're really passionate about something, you, you learn it rapidly. And I think One of the things that motivates me is just helping people. One of the things that I was missing maybe in my data governance history sometimes was that feeling of rapidly transforming somebody's experience. I think data governance is a slow burn over a long period of time. I did it for 16 years and that's Power BI really appealed to me because sometimes it's a really quick win. You go and find someone that's really struggling with some data and they need to get some insights from it and you can help them do that in hours. And sometimes you can teach that person to do it themselves and the next time you speak to them they've done incredible things on their own and shared that knowledge with somebody else that's why I love what I do and I do really love it it's not it's not just a job for me it's some, sometimes I would actually choose to play around with Power BI ahead of doing something that <laughs> you might consider more traditional fun um, which I know is very sad but that's the reality well, as you and I joked the other day is like my wife peeked into my office one evening and she was um, unfortunately curious what I was up to and then she looked at the screen, saw screens of Azure up and stuff. She's like, oh my God, you're such a nerd. It's like, this is your free time and this is what you're doing. It's like, yes, honey, you knew what you're getting into when you married me. My wife it's, has a cool saying. My wife it says, is a... geek and proud. And I always think that whenever I get caught being really geeky, I'm geek and proud. <laughs> geek and proud. All right. Yeah. I always love finding something that I can steal or borrow from guests. So geek and proud is going to be that one. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> Excellent. So you have to make a hashtag or a t-shirt out of that. Oh yeah, definitely. I need one of those for Christmas. Yeah. No. So I think obviously that became my passion, but Mm -hmm. things came to an end quite quickly at Discovery just because of all the change going on there. And I didn't know what the next plan was going to be. Just, I just felt I'd really grown a lot over the last year with them and I felt confident enough to go and be independent for the first time. And actually I'd also felt pretty, I'm going to say burned out. I'd had a couple of tough years with a lot of change in both Securus and then uh, Discovery as well. And my diary was rammed every day. And I had kind of 10 hours of meetings a day for a long period of time. At Securus, I was working on a project that was Australia, US and UK. And you can imagine the time zone challenges with that. Yes. And I think I just, I didn't have the appetite to rush straight back into a job that could be like that again. I'm actually an introvert. 
I'm, I'm not the most introverted introvert, but I'm on that spectrum, that side of the spectrum. I, I like to recharge on my own in a room left alone, basically. And when the idea of the book came up, um, it, it so packed, the publisher approached me and talked to me about potentially doing it. And data quality was just a sweet spot for me. Of everything in data governance, data quality is something that I am really excited and interested about. And so I saw that as a great place for me to do this. And I wrote an outline and very quickly I could just see the whole story end to end of how the book could add value. So what I was thinking was, it's just, it would be a great thing for me to do on my own in a room to recharge for a bit. And also having transitioned away from data governance and moved into Power BI, I had all this knowledge that I knew was valuable and that knowledge is sat in my head and not doing any, any favors basically. So my motivation for the book was to get all that down on paper and try to hopefully help some other people. That really is what motivates me, gets me out of bed. I mean, you don't make a lot of money from writing a book, let's put it that way, but but it's something I'm proud of. And I do think that if, if it ends up in a few people, they'll, they'll see mistakes that I've made or things that I've done well and be able to avoid those or leverage those themselves and, and hopefully makes their lives a bit easier. Part of this journey towards writing the book is personal. Yeah. Right. And part of it is then seeing a gap in the market on what is an important topic. So outside of this, in, this interest, both somebody approaching you, you having the idea, how did you decide what should go into this book? How did you decide you know, what, the, what the synopsis is? Maybe we should start actually, if you don't mind, give readers a, or yeah. give listeners a synopsis of the book so that they know what to expect, why they should be excited to go pick a copy up. Oh, and by the way, we'll mention that they're the first two people to contact, actually not the first two people, contact us and contact me afterwards and we'll put you in the draw in the drawing. So I'll announce that again at the end of the podcast. But we do have your publisher, was it two copies? Yes, that's right. Two e-copies. Yep. So two e-copies that we'll be able to give out. Reach out to pod or DM me on LinkedIn. On a, we'll put your name in the hat for drawing. But Rob, give us the synopsis of the book and then we can go over the motivations to write sure. it and, and how you came to the insights. Cool. So I'll start with kind of the elevator pitch, like the quick one. So this book is for people that have heard within their organization that there is a problem with data. So they, everyone you, they speak to says, oh, we can't do that because the data's crap or we can't do this because we're missing this information, but they don't know specifically what's wrong and they don't know what of, of the things that are wrong, what's important and what needs to be resolved. It's about taking them from that kind of general perception that there's an issue with the data to a point where they specifically know exactly what's wrong with the data they know which of those things that are wrong with the data are going to cripple the business versus not cripple the business. They know how to go about fixing that data and they know how to embed that into business as usual to make sure that it stays fixed. You don't just fix it once. It's... So that's, kind of, that's the overall synopsis for the book. And the way that breaks down, it starts with kind of just a, an introduction to all the impacts of bad data quality. So you, there's a definition of what bad data quality actually is. What do we mean by that? So for me, it's when it's just when the organization can't do some of the key things it needs to be able to do, can't complete its processes properly, rapidly, efficiently. It can't uh, produce insights so that it can make decisions properly and it can't comply with local laws, regulation. And in some cases where organizations are setting up data products where they're actually selling data to make to get revenue those products are not worth anything because obviously if the data is not good enough people are not going to pay for them so 
that's what we that's what I define as bad data. And then we get into kind of level set because I recognize not everyone has done data governance before. So there's where does data quality sit with the whole scheme of data management, data governance, MDM, all of that. What is a data steward? What is a data owner? What are data quality dimension? All enough to get everybody up to the same point. And then it goes into the business case for data quality, moving on to what data quality rules actually are and how to discover the ones that you need to worry about and before showing how to actually monitor data through a suite of reports that tells you immediately which data is good and which data is not and what you need to do and then gets into the more kind of business change aspects like the proper embedment embedding of the of the work that you've done into those business as usual teams I think there's good goodness in a little bit of a reductionist philosophy on mm. everybody, every organization, every kind of for-profit organization wants to make more money, but you know, reduce the cost of making that money and reduce the in, in those operations, right? And those are the three motivators, right? But the one challenge with that sim that very simplistic reduction of needs is that Everybody would be the same if that was it. Somebody chooses, like you, to be an independent consultant. Somebody else chooses to own a bake shop. Somebody else chooses. So we all make value choices on how that, on the pursuit of those three things, your risk profile and how you choose to reduce risk is going to be different than the baker, right? They're most concerned, am I doing the right thing so that the people that eat my goods are going to stay healthy and yeah. not get sick or worse die, right? Yeah. So that, that business case... It's probably the most important thing. I remember reading books way back in the day when the Kimball and Inman wars were rampant yeah. in the data warehousing world. Yeah. But most people wouldn't start with the business case. Now, the question I was going to ask, because this, this question hit my brain as you were talking earlier, mm -hmm. and it also is, I'll also relay after you, I will relay a story as well, because visualizing, so the question is, how has visualizing um, data impacted your views on data governance or your clients' views on data governance? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think the biggest shift in my mindset has been that I can now see how much data visualization people work around data quality problems. My One of the things I would always say to any client is fix the data at source. Don't, don't try to fix it Every single month, the data flows out of the source and into a data warehouse and into your kind of finance month end reports. Don't fix it there because you'll just have the same problem the next month. But the reality is that tend, it, is it seems to be very difficult in organizations for people to focus on fixing data at source. People building reports spend huge amounts of time cleaning up data and they don't tell anyone that they're doing that. And the issue there, obviously is that those issues remain under the covers. And actually the people that are creating the data aren't aiming to create bad data. They just actually don't know how that data is used and they don't know that what they're doing is wrong. So working in data visualization has allowed me to see that. And to, from a data governance and quality perspective, I think the, there's, always, there's often been that separation. You've had the, the data governance and quality people on one side and the analytics teams working independently there has to be a lot more crossover between data engineering, data visualization, and the data governance side of um, the platform so that people can, can expose those issues and make sure they are actually fixed at source instead of being worked around. I would argue 
that I'd say at least half of a data visualization person's workload is managing or dealing with poor data quality. And that's not actually, that's not necessary. If you follow the right approach, the enterprise can eliminate a great deal of that and make those people more productive. If you like this phrasing or this analogy, you are free to steal it as well. <laughs> but the, the, one of the analogies that we used to draw all the time when I was giving talks on this stuff was that building your data platform, your data warehouse, whichever, you know, data lake house, it's a fantastic opportunity to find all the dirty laundry. Yeah. Right. So now is that laundry dirty because you used it? Is that laundry dirty because it arrived that way? Is that laundry dirty because now you have a different perspective? on those clothes, like what yeah. might've been good for one and fit for purpose in one area might not be fit for purposes in the other. And so for me, one of the powerful things about visualizing is visu is using visuals to showcase the gaps because yeah. sometimes it's not just even a quality, it's a process problem. The most powerful visual <laughs> really had everybody sit up one time is working back in the day with a colo. And they were getting ready to switch from um, flat fees for servers racked um, power consumed. Okay. And yeah. so they dropped all the measurements on the back of every item in the rack. And I just asked a simple question. It's like, are you sure that you have everything tagged to a cut? Oh, positive. We've been watching <laughs> this. So I built a visual on everything that drew power and whether it was tagged to a customer or not. Okay. And 54% of the items drawing power were not tagged to a customer. Right. And they're like, holy, insert any string of things that you want to there. And then they realized that they had a problem. And it came down to it wasn't that salespeople weren't motivated. They were going to be comped on it. Wasn't, it was just communications gap. And nobody had run some simple trainings on where in the new CRM system they should have been assigning these meters to customers. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that problem got fixed pretty quickly. Yeah, I can imagine. As you can imagine. Yeah, and I think... I I did spend a lot of time thinking about that when writing the book, actually. So when I was getting into the, there's a chapter on data discovery and what that chapter is about is understanding the strategy of the organization and making sure that any work you do on data quality is tied to the strategy. And then at the end mm -hmm. of the chapter, we get into profiling of that data to identify the potential rules that you want to apply. But that chapter was an interesting, almost like a turning point for me because I hadn't consciously realized that every time I did some work on data quality that I started with the strategy, it just had come fairly naturally to me. I talked to the leaders yeah. in the area that I knew were interested in moving data quality forward and understood what they needed and translated that into data quality challenges and rules and things like that. But actually, when I look back at what I was really doing, it was having all the right conversations with the right senior stakeholders, understanding what it was they were trying to do how that fitted into what the company was trying to do overall and then understand all their challenges. And what, one of the things I always used to insist on is that we talked about all their challenges, not just what they perceived to be a data quality challenge. A lot of the time people, when you come and talk to someone and say, Hey, I want to talk to you about data quality. They'll say, Oh, I'm unhappy with my supplier data or I'm unhappy with my purchase order data or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. But actually when you get under, if you ask them to talk about just their general problem, you'll find that they'll list out 20 things and they might find that five of those things are actually data related. When you really dig into it and get under the covers, it is data related. They just haven't realized that it's data related. And if you don't have that kind of expansive conversation you and, and link it to strategy, you can miss out on finding some really important stuff. So that, that's, that was quite an eye opener for me just when writing the book. Thinking about the examples that 
I put into the book, actually linking to strategy, um, asking people to be expansive and then working out which ones really are data related was just fundamental, critical. And that is so important too, the linking to strategy, if I might underline that for a minute, because we are always going to have a long list. And that's why I like, I always use the laundry analogy, right? Yeah. Because I'm always wearing clothes. <laughs> I'm usually having to replace clothes. <laughs> I'm replace something that's worn out. Maybe I get lucky and buy some new things yeah. that my wife approves um, that don't look me too geek and proud. But <laughs> but always there's always going to be something. And so the laundry is a good visualization on the cycle. It's always coming in, always going out, always coming in, always going out. But linking to strategy is important because in my household with three kids, there's always laundry. Yeah. Right? There's always something to do. There's always things that are on the list to be done. But when... And in what order and what priority should those things be done? Like in that example of the colo, they were going to start billing next month. So that needed to be fixed. If it was going to be next year, it wasn't a big deal. They're running a trial yeah. and all that. Would it be good to have it fixed? Sure. But were there other more important things? Like maybe they had you know, an acquisition that was happening the next quarter that they needed to prep for. So yeah. having the, the accounts and the ledger down correctly and all that reporting was more, more critical then. Yeah. So the laundry list of things that we have to do is, is always going to be more yeah. than there is hours in the day. No. Strategy and knowing that next best action, that next best thing. Yeah. You have to start there. No, a perfect example. If I go back to my Vodafone explanation, nothing sensitive here because it's such a long time ago. I'm, they wouldn't mind me talking about <laughs> this. But as I said earlier, they were shifting from an organization that let every country do something in a different way and have, for example, and move, move them into a global procurement organization where you've got one team who is doing all the buying from all their large suppliers. And that was a huge strategic transformation. And then when you look at the starting point, you've got all the same suppliers providing all the same kit to all those different countries in the world. So NSN, Nokia Siemens Network at the time, providing a lot of equipment to Vodafone. But they had their own contract with Vodafone Portugal and another one with Vodafone Spain, another one with Vodafone Italy, etc. But when you start to have then global procurement, you need one single version of NSN, the supplier, and you need to know how much you're spending with them globally because you then want to go back to NSN and say, hey, can I have a discount of X because we're spending this many millions with you? And obviously you can then use your global scale and scope, right? And so that where Vodafone before didn't really worry about one single version of a supplier and looking at spend analytics in quite the same way, as soon as global procurement became the way to go, that was 100% what was needed. And we had all these different copies of suppliers that needed to be merged into one. Suddenly, supplier data became a huge priority and we needed to make sure we were focused on that. And for fortunately, we were, not deliberately. Whereas I think if you plan up front and say, start with strategy you'll always get it right you'll always and you have to then like you say with your washing analogy things change all the time your washing gets dirty again mm -hmm. or your strategy changes and you have to change your focus again so yeah just got to keep your finger on that pulse i think the most important thing in what you said there's yes you can have a strategy but it's more the exercise of asking those questions yeah. and thinking in those terms that's the most important point because you might get in and learn and things are going to change. World shifts, pandemic happens. And we used to say, it's like, oh, it's <laughs> all these after a decade, what, a decade of black swan events? Are they really, are black swans rare anymore? Yeah. <laughs> Not so sure. 
There's a couple of big topics in this book. So we have spent a little bit of time talking about business cases. Yeah. Some of the other interesting things you go into is remediation. Yeah. And so what are some of those the pat remediation patterns that you talk about um, both in or out of them? Yeah, no, sure. I think actually, to be honest, I didn't really cover business case. I covered data discovery. It's a slightly different thing. So I, I'm going to, mm. I'm going to go back a tiny bit and just talk about business case a little bit more. So sure. I think for me, the huge challenge with data quality and business case is you do need to spend money, obviously, to investigate data quality. You need, you ideally need a tool. You need to be defining, spending time with people and getting resources to help you write rules. And by rules, I just mean simple things like, you know, you might say a supplier must have a, a, a tax number, the supplier must have a full address, the supplier must have an email address. So those are data quality rules, basically. And you, the power of working in data quality is finding many rules, putting them all together into one kind of suite, um, and then showing, aggregating all that and showing where your data is good and where your data is not good. That's, the, that's what you aim to do. And the problem with all of that and the business case is that you don't know what the benefit's going to be up front because you don't know what the problems are. You've been told um, anecdotally that there are issues with a particular set of data, but you don't actually know. You can't say of our 50,000 suppliers, 10,000 of them are unusable because of data quality issues. And if we fix those 10,000, we're going to get this much in terms of dollar benefit or whatever. That, that's not something you can, you can know up front. You have to spend the money to find that out. So that's the challenge. <laughs> With data quality, it's like a chicken and egg situation. So the business case, the, I put a number of different approaches in the book to how you can go. You, the main way of of moving that forward and competing with, at the end of the day, you're in a competition when you're after budget. You're in a competition with other projects and initiatives going on in your organization. And you have to be able to produce some kind of dollar benefit usually to be able to get through that competition. And to do, you, you pick some really important examples, you actually calculate and work out a few of the data quality issues that you know might be there. You quantify then what it would do for the business if you fix those data quality issues. And then you try to extrapolate that across the full set of fields for that particular type of data. And you put a very conservative estimate of the benefits in that you could achieve. That's very hard to challenge. That's kind of the approach that I mainly recommend, but I do, as I say, I do have three or four different approaches, but I think one of one of the examples I put in the book, which I found people have found interesting, is you are competing against projects that sometimes need your project to happen first before they can be successful. And I have a great example of that from a one of one of the organisations I work for, where they were putting an e procurement tool in place and investing a lot of money in that, and it needed some basic supplier master data to be in place, I'm like VAT numbers over here in Europe. Um, and email addresses and things like that. And they didn't actually ask what the state of the data was before they kicked off the project. But they went through this whole project <laughs> with really expensive people involved and they got ready to go live and they had to make a no-go decision just before the go live because they realized then that it would fall apart after go live because the data was so bad. And the irony was I've been asking for budget to run a data quality project which would have covered explicitly the data they needed to make that project successful. And they, they had a three-month delay and definitely a lot of expense because of the data quality issues. You are competing against projects like that, but projects like that often aren't thinking about data when they go and submit budget in the first place. So definitely some irony there. 
One thing I was going to add to your examples there and, and other ways that we've used a heuristic to help cus you know, customers identify why, if I am lacking definitive answers to the benefit, how might I stage the benefit so that I can understand it? And so like in your supplier's example, if working with suppliers is core to my revenue stream. Yeah. So if I'm a computer manufacturer or some equipment manufacturer of any sort, like working with suppliers is core to my revenue stream. And if I can't answer what should be some of the industry basics on lead time for critical parts, what are my critical parts? How many vendors do I have supplying like exactly. minimum viable product? Like if I cannot answer those questions, it doesn't really matter how big or expensive. Like I have now deemed myself relatively inflexible in the market and, and susceptible to a tons of external forces that could cripple me. So therefore, if it's a critical function to my company operating and I am lacking that insight, then now it's just how many areas, are there, how do I prioritize which yeah. of those areas? If, I'm, if I have a gap here, I probably have a gap in other areas. So how can I now start to prioritize the gaps and those kinds of things? Yeah. I'm smiling because you made me think about one, I don't necessarily recommend this approach, but there was one, one time where I really, really needed some funding to get our data quality program moving and I wasn't getting it through my traditional attempts. And actually what I ended up doing with what you just said a minute ago, just telling senior people in the organization, the basic questions that we were not able to answer as a, as an organization and really just frightening them at the end of the day. Um, it's a horrible way to go and get some funding. It, it did seem to make a difference. You're basically saying, did you know that unless we do something about data quality, I can't tell you this, this and this, that's fundamentally critical to your strategy. Um, that definitely worked in the end. It's not a strategy I like to use often, but it is unfortunately a strategy that we do have to use just given, you know, how human nature works, right? It's an age old example given yeah. in economics classes, like the beginnings, <laughs> $100 today or 105 after the year. And most people will still take the 100 today. You know, we can ask psychology folks to answer all those reasons for us. One, one of the reasons like economics is what the nickname is the dismal science, right? Yeah. You're making um, me think of my degree but, now because I took I had did a degree in economics and I'm thinking of the principle of non satiety and things like that at the moment. I think we both did economics, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Very yep. good. Rob, so you you wrote this book on data quality, but then you have fallen in love with visualization. You're yeah. working a lot in your in, in your work as an independent visualization, but there is still a bent towards governance. Yes. That you So give us a little preview on the, the governance that you're doing in your data visualization, in your Power BI work. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do a lot of actual data visualization, building reports and dashboards and showing people how to get themselves a really good measure in place using a bit of code and things like that. So I do lots of that coalface stuff, but I do also a lot of governance. It, I don't really know how it happened, but I seem to have naturally fallen back into that governance world again. Um, and specifically what I've been working on a lot recently for my main client is looking at how to make sure that you can rely on your Power BI reports. So what we've done is we've thought about different tiers of reports. So there are some reports that are absolutely critical to the organization. Key decisions are made. And if those decisions are made wrongly, things can end up in the press, et cetera, et cetera. And there are other things that are just ad hoc and get done occasionally or in a completely unrepeatable way. They just, you might need to answer that question once every six months. And there are some things in the middle that are not critical, but they need some governance. What we try to do is put in a flexible approach that recognizes what you're trying to actually build 
and make sure that the checks and balances that you put around it are commensurate to that. So you don't test something to death that you are only going to use once. You don't, or that's actually the wrong example. You don't document something to death that you're only going to use once. You do test it, obviously. So what I've been working on is, you know, an approach that covers we call it peer review. So somebody builds mm-hmm. Power BI model and somebody else comes along and makes sure that they've followed best practices and they've used the right type of visualization. The calculations work. They've been efficient and kept it performant. We do, um, once we've completed that peer review, then everything moves into a sort of test environment. We write a risk-based test approach where we say, here's all the testing we're actually going to do based on what we think could go wrong with this report. We then move into a documentation phase, which we we only do the documentation at the end of testing because in visualization, things change quite rapidly um, through the test phase and you'd be wasting a lot of time. And then when things go live, we start thinking about ownership. We start thinking about making sure that the data catalogs and things are updated with all the new calculations that we've added into the report. And it ties all the way back into my history. It ties back into metadata management where you've got data definitions and you've got um the lineage between the data sets and the reports and the the original business model that you've put in place so yes coming up with report owners and what their role is it feels very much like coming up with data stewards and what their role is or data owners and what their role is so it just it does feel like everything i learned in my 16 years in data governance has been very applicable and i've somehow found myself in that space again, interesting times. And we may just have to do like a whole fun panel discussion around that topic alone. Because uh, I was just remembering one of the first times we were using Power BI at scale for, I'm here in the Austin area and there's a major computer manufacturer that's not too far from my house. Sure. And you know, one of the first questions when we were beginning the cloud journey with them was, well, Power BI is great, but anybody could tag the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on something. We can't have that. Right. So there was a very, and it was a very intelligent question. Um, and obviously we then took some time in thinking about how to roll things out, tools out like that. Yeah. So that, yes, it was important to support speed of insight and discovery and innovation, but also, geez, there's got to be some guardrails around that. Yeah. So I think that'd be, I could see us having a fun panel on, on, on yeah. that topic alone. Bring it on, um, bring it on. I'll be happy. And, happy to yes. Help. Yeah. And what, one of my, one of my, my um, former architects and good buddies, we did, a project together doing all sorts of data quality rules using great expectations. Sure. It was fantastic for, as you mentioned, that risk remediation, knowing like what's changed, when it's yeah. changed, how it's changed. Is that change good? But Ron, uh, let me just oh. add one more thing that, yeah. that's funny that just occurred to me. So <laughs> having, so in, in all my years working in data quality, I always built reports, basically almost the same reports every time. It would be a dashboard that shows the senior leaders what where the key problem areas are data quality a rule level report that shows every rule and the score on that rule and then failed data reports that show the individual records that failed and what you need to do to fix them basically and what was fun for me was having learned power bi for the book specifically i actually spent ages building those reports again myself in power bi so where i would previously have got somebody else to do that for me and been wowed by their visualization skills i got sit there at do it myself so i have this little suite now of power bi reports for data quality so once again the two things are just inextricably linked can't get away from each other if you're having fun why stop absolutely yeah
One of the last things that you hinted at um, that we could, we could close this discussion on, and again, also could be its own topic on a future session, but put a teaser out there on what you, everybody's talking about in ChatGPT, yeah. and obviously a lot more with all the drama, the made-for-TV drama that just happened recently. Yeah. But how do you see LLMs impacting the data quality work? Yeah, absolutely. So that's something I addressed quite a bit in the last chapter of the book, but just to give a summary, one of the big problems in data quality work has always been the translation of a business rule, which has to come from a business person who know the, the data really well into something technical that a rule, a tool can actually assess. So you've got very simple rules. Something shouldn't be blank. Most people could produce in simple code, computer understandable code, something like that. But when you have one rule that depends on one rule that says this field should have this value if these three other fields have these specific values that becomes actually quite challenging to code and that usually you end up bringing in a developer or multiple developers to actually build those business rules for you so you've got one person over here who has the idea and then you have somebody else in the middle that has to do the implementation work and actually that's where a lot of the expense comes when it comes going back to business case again a lot of the expense comes from mm -hmm. those developers so i think I can see very easily large language models. I, I use ChatGPT all the time to generate code now myself. And I think you'll be able to build those. I think the data quality tool vendors are bound to be building that into their tools so that people can specify a business rule and the tool will convert that into code. And, and they, and you know, you still need a developer to check things over and make sure things are right. But that, those developers will be able to do a lot more in for the, with the time that they have. So I see that being extremely valuable. I think those models as well will be able to go the other way around. So where there are existing data quality rules that maybe are not very human readable, they'll be able to generate a business description of those rules that contributes to your data catalog and makes a big difference there. And I think eventually, maybe not today, I think it's too soon, but eventually you'll be able to tell the large language model about the strategy of the business which data is important to deliver that strategy and it will be able to assess the data itself. So take today what is just data profiling where you look at maximum values, minimum values, shortest string lengths, longest string lengths. It'll be able yeah. to take that kind of information and run many more profiles than a human can run today and just produce an amazing set of data quality rules for you and prioritize those data quality rules for you. And even in remediation, I imagine there'll be lots of scope for automatic remediation of data through large language models as well. We, we didn't touch on remediation in the end, but you've got a various different approaches you might take to remediation. One would be comparing your data set to a third party's data set that you trust. So Dun & Bradstreet's a great example. Mm -hmm. They provide a really well up updated set of business data and you can put, compare your customers and suppliers to that data and get additional information from them that you wouldn't otherwise have, you'd be able to ask something, a large language model to do that for you in the future, I'm sure, and make a huge yeah. number of corrections. So loads of scope. And I think anyone who wants to work in data quality for the next 20 years needs to start practicing with large language models and get used to them. Absolutely. When, and on that example, I think the other thing I would add that I'm excited about is the ability for these things to eventually 
help provide more context, right? Because in the example of the men and the Macs and data profiling, SIS used to have all that yeah. stuff. Yourself. For the kids listening, yeah. this was a tool in, <laughs> in on-prem days. Yeah. But it, it there was limited value in that, right? Yeah. Because it did, without the context around the min and the max values, and it just go back to, it's like that the flash crash on the stock, on the New York Stock Exchange, where somebody, a broker, and I forget which uh, brokerage house it was, but accidentally typed in 16 billion versus 16 million. Yeah. Right? And so that 16 billion is a properly recorded value. It is indicative of what happened on that day. 100%. But is that yeah. a correct value? Like, in, it's correct, and that is what happened. Yeah. But is it correct in like the dis distribution of value? Maybe not. But you have to know you have to know the b bigger context around the event and everything in that data to know is like is this value is something right about this? Did this order get canceled before it was actually executed? Maybe not. No, absolutely. So absolutely, there's a whole lot. Of, I see the power of context being provided yeah. with. These. And today, you do try to reflect that in data profiling. Actually, you'll say, okay, I've just run a profile for the whole data set, and I see some values which. I didn't learn much from doing that, but if I run it for just a subset, so if I run it for finished goods products, for example, then mm -hmm. there are, there's, I have the context of finished goods and I know that nothing should weigh more than X if it's a finished good. And, th and then yeah. my min and max means something more. But my challenge was always, I didn't have time to run 50 profiles. I only had time to run five. And something yeah. like ChatGPT or its successors will be able to run a thousand profiles with many, many different contexts and look for all the sort of weird and wonderful things that are going on and I think generate far better data quality rules than we can today. It is an exciting new world out there for sure. Rob, what we'll close with is just mentioning again, the two copies of the book. Yep. And so if you are interested in being considered for those two free copies, please hit me up on LinkedIn, DM me, and we will put your name in the hat. As like, let's just say we'll leave it open for the next two weeks. I can send a note on LinkedIn or they can, Rob, they can send you a note. I'll Perfect. end up collecting all the, uh, the names and doing the drawing. And then we'll, the publisher will send out a copy of the book afterwards. Awesome. But go ahead and send us the note. And Rob, if people are interested in connecting with you, what's the best way to get in touch? LinkedIn's a great way to get in touch. Absolutely. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So yeah, find me on LinkedIn, drop me a message. Be great. And then we'll talk about that on that panel at some point Sounds too, because I think that'd be a fun topic to do next year. Thanks. All right, hey. Rob, have a great day and we'll catch up with you later. Thanks, Thanks for your time. See you soon. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.